Hi, I'm Tony Cameron. And I'm Benedict Evans. And today we're joined by Jeremy Wyatt. Hi, Jeremy. Hi there. Thank you for being with us and thank you for joining us today. This is going to be fun. I'm more than welcome. Not that you need any introduction, but you are Wired UK's executive ed editor. You've also got extensive knowledge of the product world, but also you do a fair amount of trend analysis and identifying the emerging tech trends, which I think are just some of the reasons why Benedict and I really wanted to have you on, specifically as a follow-up of one of the our episodes that we did around ad tech that we fondly refer to as an episode of ad tech by two people in tech who know very little about ad tech, but so does the rest of the world. Well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I know you mentioned that you were not an ad tech expert, but I'm pretty sure you know a little bit more than both of us. But what was interesting for us is just how much the ad tech um, is just one part, one small piece of this ever-growing puzzle that is the publishing industry. And I really loved when I brought this up to you that you were like, well, how do you even define the publishing industry today? And so I feel like that's a nice segue into us having this conversation about the publishing industry as a whole, where we are, where it's going, and what has even changed? Well, exactly right. I mean, it, it, it is, you have to try and work out what, what it actually is, what it looks like. It's so radically different. And for being so static for such a long period of time, it's changing so fast at the moment anyway. You've got the rise of people, of the influencers and people trying to actually run their own operations on themselves. You've got the rise of uh, journalists actually leaving established brands and going into uh, operating their own as well. Uh, the, the newsletter uh, rise as well. Um, yeah. All of this taking place. But this is relatively recent. And if you look at what took place you know, from the rise of, of the web and the internet and so on for you know, so many years ago, uh, these are something that the media industry, publishing industry, has been grappling with for a considerable period of time, trying to work out what on earth they're going to do to, to exist in this world, in this new world. It's almost like they've, everybody's trying to figure out a, a way or like very recently, like they've been stumbling along in the dark for a long period of time and uh, everybody trying to copy each other. I remember when at Condé Nast, we, were, we went heavy on iPad editions of the magazines uh, spent a lot of money a lot of money on trying to do this um, and then even tried to do kindle versions of the magazines as well thinking this is where publishing was going and this is where the model was and we were going to walk towards these new digital consumers that wanted our titles but in a digital format and it just wasn't the case it was a complete misreading of the format mm. i mean it's interesting i mean we were chatting before we started that in particular, even more for newspapers and magazines, actually, an awful lot of these arguments we basically could have said in about 2005, if not earlier, like the unbundling, the advertisers move, suddenly the audience has far more options, and so on, and so on, and so on. And like the curves have been basically going in the same, the lines on the chart have been going in the same direction for sort of 10 or 15 years. It's just they kind of reached a crisis point, sort of for newspapers five years ago and for magazines now. Um, I mean, the interesting, I mean, I, I absolutely remember the whole iPad magazine thing. Um, and of course, the, the irony was, I mean, even before it, there was that thing by Sports Illustrated, which was like the, this concept of what an interactive magazine would look like, which in hindsight was rather like looking at like interactive TV in the early 90s or CD-ROMs and not understanding that the future mm -hmm. was the web. And disaggregation and social, it was not aggregation and putting everything in a sealed box. Um, and yet, ironically, the only things that I gather actually worked were people doing PDFs. Yeah. So the people doing PDF of um, model railway world, they add zero extra cost and suddenly they can sell globally. Whereas the people trying to completely reinvent Vogue or Wired, suddenly you're spending double your money on making a whole other magazine and nobody buys it. It was. And funnily enough, uh, the wide audience were one of the few audiences that did actually want all the bells and whistles of these new uh, titles. And you can understand why they would. Yeah. But so when we actually switched to, we realized we were spending a, a lot of money doing this interactive uh, additional magazine. It was wonderful. Everyone loved it in the title. We loved it. Um, but we switched, obviously, to a PDF version and the wide audience was missing the bells and whistles. But there was one of the few of it. But that's where you get, you know, these companies like Readly right now, which where where you can for, with one subscription, you can have the PDF access to. Uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of magazines for one for one uh, title, you know, for one monthly subscription. And this is something that, you know, it's very difficult to compete with 
from a subscription model point of view is as all if you look at all magazines they all say we're moving towards a subscription model rather than newsstand for obvious mm. reasons and then when you've got people like Readly doing that it's very difficult to to argue against and even even the PR agencies are using those services now for their clippings and searching for when their clients are actually mentioned because it's one, they're not even subscribing to the magazines because they just have to subscribe to someone like Readly and say, that's it, that's the whole thing. We'll do a word search just for this, for our brand and see which titles have mentioned it in one go. Funny, I know um, Johnny Caldor at PubPig, which is the other side of this. Um, because there was the whole let's make our own magazine platform, which was spectacularly expensive. And then there was the Adobe product, which was sort of a PDF, except they were basically all JPEGs of each page, which sort of plugged into InDesign, but it was at least as easier to do. And then PogPig is, is basically an RSS feed, as I understand it, it's HTML. And it's been kind of interesting to see them just kind of go off one by one, peeling off all the people who were using Adobe and were doing their own rich interactive thing and say, no, let's just make it as simple as and cheap as and as, as and incremental as we possibly can and um, and treat it as incremental revenue rather than reimagining the um reimagining the product. Um, but I don't know, there's another sort of shifting gear, there's like an, there's an old line that you know never invest in anything called virtual because it's always going to be like a crap copy of something in the real world rather than like a real new thing. And so you could kind of say in hindsight, like virtual magazine or even like digital, never invest in something called digital. Yeah. So digital newspapers, digital magazines were the wrong way to go. And the answer was like something native to the new form, whether that and that in a sense turned out to be Instagram or TikTok or newsletters or something else. But it's something that it's sorry, it's slightly the wrong way of putting it, because all of these digital editions were trying to be native to the new form, but they were trying to make the magazine digital rather yeah. than. And the actual thing was you went two levels further down to the atomic units of the talent or the writers or the celebrities or the pictures. And so it's Instagram that unbundled our decoration for the sake of argument. I'm, I'm reminded of a quote that, that um, I heard on uh, Peter Day's In Business many years ago, which was uh, a brilliant BBC uh, radio publication where they talked about this idea. I mean, this, is, we're getting, this is going back to the, the ideas of when we used to talk of these terms of, oh, you know, old media and new media. New media. Exactly. And I, like, you know, I can't believe how long since I heard those sorts of things. And um, but it was this is what we were. People were trying to work out, you know, how we're we actually going to translate these titles into into new media. And the, the piece today was interviewing somebody and they just said, well, you know, what we most people haven't worked out why we're not making money from it is because when we've gone from old media to new media, we're going from thousands of markets of millions to millions of markets of thousands. And that's why those particular models don't work um, when you're working in a mass market medium, such as publishing, such as a magazine, such as a newspaper. And it took people an enormously long period of time to even work that out, for one, and then to then start thinking about how we'd actually combat that from a business point of view and adjust the model so we can actually do that. And it seems to me... Uh, I don't know what your view is, uh, Tony Benedict, uh, but it's, it seems to me that they're only just starting to come to grips with it. And that's where this sort of idea of affiliate marketing comes in as well, like this idea of a new form of revenue, a new way of actually getting money from this sort of digital version of, of what they're used to. And away from just, just assuming that the advertising revenue was going to be coming across with them from their old ways to the new ways. There's so many interesting things here. I mean, one of them is I remember the story that like 20 years ago, the Telegraph was the UK's largest retailer of like bed linen or <laughs> towels or something. So it's what's old, what's old is new. Um, the the yeah. new media thing is interesting because I was thinking about writing something about this that um, I find myself using this phrase physical media a lot. Yeah. which is sort of again it's like you said there was tv and color tv and then there was tv and black and white tv and then there was just tv and same with mobile remember when people talked about mobile internet no one really talks about mobile internet anymore and then it was desktop internet and kind of desktop internet has kind of gone now and now we've got retail and physical retail yeah yeah and like it just reflects your assumption of like the new thing gets a label and then it's the old thing i mean the advertising thing is, is sort of fascinating to me i mean we've sort of in various aspects of like my basic thesis on advertising is that no one who doesn't work in ad tech understands any of it. Um, and particularly people in tech, no one in tech who doesn't work on an ad tech team understands advertising. Like no one at Google who doesn't work on the advertising team understands the advertising. 
I read a quote this morning that one of the themes of digital advertising is plausible deniability, which is the feature, not the bug. And I was like, that feels pretty accurate. It is purposeful that people just don't seem to understand it and it's and it's opaque. Well, I, I always had a slight suspicion when I was looking at these companies years ago that the reason why it appeared so complicated was it was actually very simple and it was just about <laughs> type pasting stuff into Excel spreadsheets and then doing if statements to calculate the price. Um, and they would tell you that, well, it's all technology. It's all technology. <laughs> but, but one, I mean, I've been on several calls today talking about what will happen next. And one of the things that it, it kind of occurs to me is like the whole cookie apocalypse thing and the privacy thing and all of this stuff is actually only about sort of a quarter to a third of online advertising because there's YouTube, which is where video advertising is, there's, there's, well, let me put it another way. There is search advertising where the core of search advertising is what you typed in and it's sort yeah. of informed by lots of other data, but the core of it is you search for X, so that's what you see. And then YouTube, again, the core of it is what get, is the run of network. And there's some, it's, some of it is informed by what happened elsewhere. And the same thing on Instagram and the same thing on Facebook and Amazon. My point is you've got Google search, YouTube, Facebook, Amazon, where all of it is sort of informed by cookies, but most of it is first party data and all the data that they yeah. have of what happens on that site. And the place where third party cookies and no tracking and everything else really kills is on sort of the bit that's left over, the bit that's called other which is frankly Condé Nast, which is sort of other, and News Corporation and Yahoo and AOL and everything else, which is all in that sort of the remaining, whatever the number is, a third or so of online advertising, which is a bit where all the privacy stuff really impacts. Um, whereas if you're Google and you're running Google search, like, well, yes, you'd like to have all the cookie stuff, but as somebody who knows nothing about advertising, I sort of thought like a priori, the whole point of Google search is like, you didn't even need to be, even need, you could, it would work fine in, in private mode. And I'm probably exaggerating this, but it's just kind of interesting that all the, the argument is that about this tracking stuff is so is all actually focused. It doesn't really affect Instagram. You'd mentioned, Jeremy, that cookies wasn't fit for purpose at some point, like when we're looking at this wider model. So let's talk a bit about that, because that feels interesting. Of what does a better advertising model even look like as we look at this, this whole scenario? That's the cookie was something that was invented, obviously, you know, way before many, most of this was actually even considered. And so what you've got, what you've got is this sort of uh, this sort of pyramid of stuff that's been built on the cookie. And, obviously, and now it's just not fit for purpose anymore for what you what you wanted today. So the, uh, this concept of actually getting rid of the or, or you know or this modification of, of what Google wants to do what Apple wants to do um, or has done um, is is uh, it's I'm not actually sure personally whether that's what the consumer want, consumer wants uh, what I'm what I'm convinced of is I, I, I don't think people don't want advertising or don't want to be tracked I, I personally think that they want just want they want better advertising. They want it to actually work. Yeah. Um, I'm not personally offended by the advertising that I get served up on Instagram because most of the time I actually buy stuff from those recommendations. And I'd like to know how they're so bloody good, but they are. And they actually I get down a rabbit hole and I can end up buying two or three things at a time yeah. occasionally. And that's the point where at no point in that discussion does I, do I find myself offended that they know what I want. Because it, the, the journey has worked and the recommendation is sound. So what really people are offended by, in my opinion, is when that, when that journey is unsuccessful and when they, we're served up something that they don't actually want. And at that point, they find it intrusive and then they start complaining about it. So what are they really complaining about here? Are they complaining about the, something that they, they're getting something that they're not, not interested in? Or are they complaining about that they've been monitored and that monitoring has led them to be fed bad advertising? I think the phrase Facebook sells your data is fascinating here, not primarily because it's just factually untrue, but because it's sort of an attempt to come up with a clearer way of describing what somebody thinks the problem is. It's a way of trying, instead of saying, okay, targeted advertising, you get people say we should ban targeted advertising. Well, all advertising is targeted, so you've just said ban advertising. Oh, I want to ban tracking. Okay, well, look in the settings on your iPhone and there's a whole section of stuff that Apple calls tracking. And then there's a whole other section of stuff that Apple says, we don't track you. We just look at your credit card data, your location, your internet traffic, which apps you download, where you live, your gender. Like, okay, wait, wait, I think like- is, Define this tracking, is tracking, yeah. Define tracking. 
Um, and so there's a lot of sort of vagueness about what this is. And then people throw these sort of panic sort of horror stories of, oh, my God, we're being surveilled. And, oh, my God, Facebook is manipulating your emotions. Um, so there's a lot of sort of vagueness. There's a lot of religion. Um, I think there's also like a disconnect between, to your point about cookies, a disconnect between what cookies ended up doing and what advertisers actually cared or publishers actually cared about. I mean, I wrote something about this recently. I said, well, you know, if you are Patek Philippe, you want to show watch ads to rich men. If you are Procter and Gamble, you want to show diaper nappy ads to women with small children, maybe men with small children, not retired people and not students. And you don't care who any of these people are. You don't want to follow that. I mean, this is the silliness of this sort of Apple advertising. You're not following people. You don't care about anything. You just want to show ads for this product to people who are likely to buy this product and not show it to people who aren't likely to, to show it to, 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 to this product. And the way we ended up, we did it before the internet, of course, was I put, you know, ads for some things in Wired and I put ads for different things in Vogue and a little bit of the same. And with cookies, suddenly you can target the reader instead of the page. So if I want to target a wired reader, I don't have to buy ads on wired anymore. I can target that kind of user at a disaggregated way all over the internet. Or if I can, I can, I don't have to pay the economist to show Patek Philippe ads to people who read the economist, you know, I mean, not in a specific sense, but in a general sense. Yeah. yeah. And, but the point is, there's a disconnection between the way the technology ended up doing it, which was to record every, every web page that you look at and tell all sorts of random companies and what any of those companies actually wanted and what the advertisers actually wanted, which they didn't actually want any of that. They just wanted to know that you looked at a car ad last week. Yeah. This user, the person on this page looked at a car ad last week, so we should put a car ad here. And that is sort of where you get to things like Flock or Apple's Federation, which is sort of trying to do that. Um, it also begs the question of, well, like, where does the money go next? Does the money all go back to widen the economist? Because if you're Patek Philippe and you can't advertise, not that they were buying network, but, you know, if you want to advertise, if you're Ford and you want to advertise cars, maybe now you can only advertise them in the same equivalent, online equivalent to the places you advertise them in 1980. I mean, I don't really know what the answers to that is, but it just feels like the, those are sort of the levers that are being pulled and where does the money go now? Does the money all go back to Condé Nast? Probably not. Um, <laughs> well, I'd hope so, but you're probably right, unfortunately. I suppose but the point is, like, the way that the advertising worked, A, was doing stuff that wasn't really what was needed, and B, now it's going away, and I don't think anyone has a good sense of where the money goes next. Well, that's, that's why I think they're trying to work towards other areas of revenue generation through, their, through the content itself. I mean, this is, and it's another form of advertising. That's why this, you know, everybody now is running towards the, the affiliate marketing model. And the mm -hmm. idea is that some people assume that this is going to replace the advertising revenue. And so this will be a new way of supplementing that income that, what, that, that never came when, it, when we switched from old media to new media. And that sort of that disappeared. And so now we've got, we've finally struck upon this idea of a, a method by which publishing companies or journalism can, journalists can, can monetize the output that they have, this, this content they're putting out. Whereas before, the only way to monetize it was to sell subscriptions or to sell advertising, whether you want it online or whether you want it in print. It's also a more direct connection. Exactly. You can see what you're selling. And so basically, so now everybody's going towards it and they say, oh, hang on a minute. OK, so we were producing all this content. We're writing about all this product and, you know, and we're linking to the websites, which what we were doing anyway in the publishing world. Why can't we make some money from it? And so this is where everybody is going now. I mean, this is where future is in particular is making an enormous play for affiliate revenue, affiliate marketing. Now, affiliate marketing, obviously, as I said, is, is literally just the percentage that the publisher gets through either from Amazon or either from the retailer or the, the brand itself when you recommend a product to the reader and then they actually buy it and they get you get a tiny percentage. It's mm. much smaller in the UK. In technology, for example, it's traditionally around about 2 or 3 or 4%. Whereas in the States, it would be, it would be significantly higher. Um, whereas in other areas, like in, in makeup or fashion, it could be up to between like 10 and 12%, for example. Now, so these are significant you know, amounts that you can get, depending on what areas you're talking about here. If you look at what Future's doing, I think in you know, end of September last year, they, uh, or maybe the year before, their affiliate marketing reached 79 million pounds. 
and that was 23% of the of the total group revenue. And the number of, of transactions made by affiliate links on the websites in 2020 for future was over 13 million. And that was up from 9 million the year before. And so, and then the year before that was, um, it was 3 million. So from 3 million to 9 million or 10, nearly 10 million to then nearly uh, to 13 and a half million. This is the, the rate of growth it's getting. And future bet heavy on affiliates way before most other publishers actually did. If you look at the amount of people they've got uh, um, employed just for doing affiliate marketing and affiliate revenue and affiliate content, uh, it's much more than the other publishers put together. It's interesting listening to you talk about that, Jeremy, because I remember back in the day reading women's magazines when I was much younger, 20 years ago, looking at the sort of like, hey, top best things you need for summer, whatever those things, or, you know, top 10 in technology. And then when I became, back in the day, became a blogger, that affiliate was one way for me to make money. And that was 10 years ago already, but they were replicating what they were, this whole model was replicating what they're already seeing in women's magazines. And so it's interesting that then 10 years after the influencers and the bloggers doing this and making money from it, the actual media publishing companies are actually replicating the model that they did before without making money from it seeing how the influencers and the bloggers were making money from it and then thinking okay we can monetize that and I guess there's there's two areas that my brain goes to one is the level of trust that I know that influencers and bloggers and individual people were able to build that trust where people trust that the the affiliate money that they're making was like products that they enjoyed and loved and used and they cared for. And I think that's changing a little bit, but there's also a question for me that I'd love to get your thoughts on is saturation. When everyone is doing this, what does it look like when every single magazine is coming out with the top 10 headphones and yeah. the top best mics? Like, where does that go? Because it seems like we're in a bubble right now of oversaturation. SEO saturation on that. As well. I mean, the, the funny thing is, you know, again, if you think about inverting this, that um, ASOS, is in that building in Mornington Crescent in North London, which I think used to be a magazine company. And they have several hundred people making content. They do, they do, and to sell their product. So and they are a fashion company, you know, they are a media company that monetizes through e-commerce way yeah. before. Mm-hmm. So an e-commerce company that made content as opposed to a content company that made e-commerce. Exactly, it's, a, it's an enormous area of growth. You know, and the trouble is with an enormous area of growth or where it's almost like a gold rush. And so you've got everybody sort of like running to them dar hills and saying, okay, well, you know, this is what we're going after. And my word, we need a slice of this action because they're seeing how much money uh, the different publishing companies are making from it. And Condé Nast is making an awful lot of money too from this as well. And what are we trying to do is the problem with that, as you say, is that everybody's trying to do the same sorts of things. There are some difficulties of overlap because when you're a publication like Wired, we're naturally affiliated to that sort of content. We can actually write about best headphones. We can actually write about laptop computers and things like that. And people, things that people actually buy regularly on a day-to-day basis. If you're yeah. GQ, you know, you can write about best t-shirts and you can write about these are the, you know, these are the home furnishings, I suppose you want to. But what do you do when you're an architecture magazine? What do you do when you're um, a, you know, a magazine that's devoted towards some sort of other sort of lifestyle pursuit that isn't so relevant to this sort of product? Now, you would traditionally say, or quite rightly say, well, no one's going to go into it then. They're not going to go down that route and try and shoehorn that prospect in. But people are doing it. You are seeing best headphones guides appearing on some very strange publishing titles that just go, what have you got to do with headphones? What's Nothing. Exactly. Another way of getting around it is publishing companies, instead of trying to actually do it, attribute it to the titles themselves, you've got the new hookers doing The Strategist, which is a a website that is just for affiliate revenue. It is just buying guides. And so rather than attach them to your individual brands, you just hive it out to its own brand and go from there, which wouldn't allow you to do anything. It also feels very transparent from a user perspective. Sorry, but this was the origin of Wirecutter. And Wirecutter, yeah. of course, was organic yeah. because originally it was somebody from a tech website who said, yeah. I'm fed up of reviewing everything in infinite detail and not t- just telling you which one to buy. So I'll make a site yeah. that just says, no, this is the one you should buy rather than doing the t- So instead of, no, they don't do top 10 headphones. The whole point is, no, you don't need a list of top 10 headphones. You just, this is the expensive one. This is the cheap one. Yeah. 
It's, and you're right. It's a, it, it, that's exactly where it came from. Rel it's relatively recent in terms of, you know, like it's, it's not in, in the great scheme of things in publishing. It's actually, which moves quite slowly, as we've already talked about. It's actually relatively recent. And people are only now getting into a situation where they're, you know, realising what we can actually do. Future has been in it a number of years more than Condé Nast, for example. And it, it's one of those areas where, yes, in hindsight, you know, we could have got into earlier. But the point being is that it's it's still not too late to enter that particular game. Yeah, the interesting thing, like, like you, again, you, you can, can contrast this with ASOS, um, but could also contrast it with Instagram. I was going to go there. Yeah. As a, a way for to your friends to look at, to share pictures with your friends and evolved into an interest graph for many people. And now is building, um, has built retail on the back end of that in a very kind of actually quite a thin way as partnerships with Spotify and so on. But that again is, you know, if, if Instagram in many ways is sort of unbundling um, magazines or newspapers, it's the individual, the food writer, the travel writer, the architecture writer, the interiors writer, again, in specific verticals. So there's some verticals where it works and somewhere it's, you just can't work out how to do pictures about that. And politics doesn't really work yeah. on Instagram. Um, <laughs> Politics is, you know, let's show this for ugly people, it's literally. Um, Benedict. But, but, <laughs> what? I know you're right, yes, yes. <laughs> I know you worked in Brussels, it's not my fault. <laughs> and that's why you left. <laughs> um, no, but, but, but my, my point is that there's some genres, again, to your point, there's some genres where it fits naturally and some where it doesn't. And, but again, Instagram, again, is has gone down that commerce route of how do you monetize directly. Um, and then the other place, of course, you can go is the Substack thing, yeah. where, again, for another a different kind of writer, a different kind of content, you can sell it directly. I mean, self-evidently, there's way more on Instagram than there is on Substack. Yeah. And setting aside how many subscriptions can you have, I also feel like how many people can write that much once a week? How big is that going to be? I feel like that's thousands of writers, not millions of writers, whereas Instagram is millions, can be millions of yeah. creators. And it's interesting. I just saw that TikTok also is going full in also on the affiliate programs as well, um, working with brands. And that only took them a handful of months. They've now got links at the bottom of posts as you scroll to buy now, check out. So it's, it's interesting how how long it watching how long it took Instagram to get into this and then watching how short of a period it took TikTok to get into this which is wild exactly and you still and for, from a from a publishing point of view you know you still can't really monetize Instagram in that manner there's you know only certain people are out to so if you go on Omega's Instagram feed for example yes you can see the little price tag dangling on the watch and you can actually click through to it but you can't do that from a publishing point of view they haven't they haven't really fully turned on that engine yet in order to do that Years ago, someone from the FT's How to Spend It told me the story of um, going to for his trip to, um, he's probably told everyone this story, but going to this trip to um, Zurich and meeting the watch company and the watch company pans over kind of a scrap of paper that's torn out of How to Spend It with a picture of one of their watches. And so somebody walked into our shop and bought two of these and it's like a million, half million pound watch. And it wasn't even an ad, it was from editorial. <laughs> I know, exactly. But the thing is, that it, and, and how to spend it, which I, I, have to, I have to declare on this podcast I used to work at, I was the digital editor there. And the uh, thing about how to spend it, it was almost like the exception to the rule because people did still take the magazine into shops and say, I want this. Or like, it was like, how to spend it sold stuff. It shifted. If you featured it, it shifted those products. But the problem was, is that I've heard that used in PR terms as has shown an example of, look, look, this is how, you know, this is how it works. It proves the point that this sort of thing works. It's not really, it's the exception to the rule. If you yeah. look at the kind of people that are reading how to spend it, it's very particular type of, of person that you're really not trying to engage with if you're talking about a wider sort of marketing strategy or selling strategy. For, it's just not something you want to use as an example. And, and there's a parallel with that as well. I and mean, when the pandemic first hit, uh, it was the watch brands actually that, uh, that were, that, that were un, uh, un, incapable of, of leveraging any e-commerce whatsoever. 
because they just weren't set up for it. it, it uh, Patek Philippe, for example, had no e-commerce strategy whatsoever. And so for the first time ever, they actually got in touch with their dealerships, their dealers, and said, can you sell, you can, can you start selling our watches online, which they'd never done before. And they weren't able to actually do it themselves. And they were that unprepared for it, even in 2020. And whereas most of the other uh, um, watch brands have some sort of rudimentary e-commerce platform, and it is rudimentary, it's nowhere near as sophisticated as other forms of, uh, of, of retail. And so it's interesting that, that those are the examples, you know, I can fully understand someone going into ripping out a page of a magazine and going into saying, I want to buy this. Because the average, what's the average age of a Rolex? I think 68 is the average Rolex age buyer. I think the other, the other how to spend it story was the double page ad for Rolls Royce that sold one car. And that was a good ROI. Well, yes, exactly. Business. Um, I don't think that works for yachts. You see ads for yachts in how to spend it too. I don't know if anyone's torn a page out and gone to um, <laughs> a yacht, <laughs> Fiat Chip or whatever those companies are, and said, "I want to buy that one, please." <laughs> crazy. It's just crazy. But we're talking about Substack. I mean, the interesting thing about Substack is is that you know what Apple announced literally just the other day at WWDC is that mm. is it, it's still unclear whether that will actually affect um, the journalists that have gone towards Substack and this newsletter gold rush or what they perceive it to be and whether that will actually affect it if you read the different accounts some say it will some say it won't it's it only works in it only works in Apple's mail account anyway but the, the interesting thing about that is that if you look at if you look at mail clients I think Apple in the world is Apple is something like yeah, Apple's man something like sixth, and it and it's a massive drop off from from Gmail, of course. And there's a much larger proportion of people who obviously who use Apple Mail who obviously have some sort of affinity with the kind of content they can find on Substack. So, so looking at my stats, um, Apple and uh, Apple Mail and iOS are about forty five percent. There you go. Much larger than the global split of, e of email clients. So it's it, there is your hard stats on the kind of people that are engaging in this sort of content. that want to find out that sort of you know news from experts and journalists that they that they respect and want to know that what their view is 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 has a higher proportion of people using using Apple Mail. And but even so, will this actually? be uh, detrimental to their business model is that like when you can count when you can count what the what, what your what your subscriber growth is and what your revenue growth is is it is it as important to know whether they've opened it it depends so if you are selling a pure subscription email and people are paying then if people pay you know your your list is however many hundred or however many thousand and you get a credit card every month if people aren't aren't opening it, well, they'll probably cancel quite quickly. So that's not that important a number. Um, if on the, the other hand, you're providing a free newsletter that you're monetizing through sponsorship and you need real scale to do that, you can't do that with hundreds or thousands of subscribers. You need, you know, tens of thousands or more subscribers to do sponsorship. But when you're doing that, then it becomes more of a question because you can go, you know, you want to be able to go to your sponsor and say, well, how many people open it? Yeah. If you just say I've got 100,000 subscribers and I've got a, you do have a 5% open rate or 45% open rate. That's an important number um, because it's not necessarily about the clicks. Yeah. You know, you're just showing the ad. And so, you know, if you are, if you've got a hundred late newsletter, I mean, this is not me, but if you pick a number, if you've got 100,000 subscribers and you're selling an ad, for in a month, every week for five or $10,000, which is not an unreasonable number. And now you have no idea how many people will see that because the way the Apple system works is that the mail client, and it's not just Apple mail email addresses. So a lot of people read their Gmail in the Apple mail app. So the Apple mail app will download all the images. And so it will report hundred percent open rate for every email that you get and so you won't know what the open rate is for 40 percent of your base and so now you go to that sponsor and you say oh, sorry, i no longer know what my open rate is i know i've got a hundred thousand subscribers i know this is what the click rate is because that's still getting that's still you know they can tell you how many clicks came from that email they give you a special url but i don't know how many people saw your ad i have no idea yeah and to say that that just doesn't matter 
and things seems to be a little bit simplistic. Now to say that it kills newsletters is equally simplistic because clearly if you're selling your subscription and people are paying $10 a month, then the open rate means le is less important because the open rate will be 80 or 90% anyway. And if you're open rate, you're not, if you, you nobody's got a paid newsletter with a 10% open rate. And we get into the political side of things of just, I'm just, that's where my head always goes when I talk about newsletters and emails. And it's just yeah. when politics, you know, what is it going to look like when politicians, when I used to work at NationBuild, that was the big thing of we need to know how many a percent of our emails is being open, who's opening them, who's clicking on the links, who's donating, who's not donating. That's going to mess up that whole industry um, as well. Well, the links you still get because the links are unique. And if they click on a link, this, as far as that's I can see, nothing Apple can do about that. Now, that you still need the IP, or, but like, that's not really what you care about. Back to Substack. We were talking about this interesting um, trend that we were seeing of the amount of journalists leaving media companies to go off on their own to become individual writers using Substack or whatever other platforms. But you brought up something that was interesting, which was, these journalists are leaving to be able to solely focus on writing, yet the publishing companies are sort of focusing on something maybe a little bit different, which might be video. So there's an interesting trend that I'd love to get your thoughts well, on. I don't think Colin Ness has made any, any bones about the fact that video is, is probably the most important strategy for the company going forward. And so, and this has been happening for quite some period of time where you've got the the writers obviously have found an avenue to go off and do the writing, you know, direct to their to their you know customer base or their, yeah. to their consumer base. And then you've got the publishing companies, which quite a long time ago or, or a few years ago started obviously setting themselves up as de facto broadcasters and saying, okay, well, we're now going to produce lots of our own video and lots of our own audio as well. Now that's a completely different skill set to actually writing copy and producing newspapers. Uh, dailies and, and it's just radically different and but there was this whole shift of trying to say okay we're now going to move into the space and then obviously you had these other uh, other companies uh, um, in, 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 you know the television companies obviously going into films and you, and you had this sort of almost this game of musical chairs where you everybody was sort of getting up and shifting around and moving and sitting around in, in a different seat it's an interesting state of affairs where you go if we can if we'll where we'll end up with that sort of people going around will we will we end up back where we started or will everybody end up sort of like abandoning the game altogether and going off to do something else and if it is a game of musical chairs is there someone that's gonna miss out or you know end up thinking crap I shouldn't have jump ship or I shouldn't have gone out on my own the world is changing I've got a specific skill set I just I think of all of these so writers who've gone off on their own and as we talk about like cookies and changing and like that if that is that going to affect a big part of their business they're going to need to learn all of this new skill set of how well, you're going to make revenue indeed you also way. brought up an example of those writers banding together as yes. well they're producing some sort of producing their own sort of cohorts and of their own content too yeah. which sounds very very yeah. you know very suspicious to me like a publishing company and i was going <laughs> to say that goes back to benedict's you know your whole idea of bundling unbundling it's interesting when you've got these people who go individually and then say oh let's come together and there's so many of them popping up they've got their own discord channels slack channels where there's 10 journalists coming together and you can't help but think wait a minute to your exactly. point aren't you creating a media company here and, and if we're going to be going into, into into video and wholesale, and if we're going to be sort of like doubling down on things like affiliate revenue, we have to make sure that we're doing it in the right way. Otherwise, it's you know the credibility of the brands will suffer suffer yeah. enormously, and it, that's something that is is very much um, in it, it hangs in the balance as far as I'm concerned right now, because there are so many things that that take place in this sort of new areas, if, you, if we continue with, the, with affiliates, is just, there are, we've got titles that are, that are doing guides and you know, affiliate, affiliate content that may not be completely linked to what actually they're doing. You've got also then got the advertising uh, companies and the brands themselves almost seeing this as, as possibly a new way or a different way or a cheaper way to actually get advertorial content or advertising content but sneaking it in under the radar and making it so it's actually it seem as if it's uh, it's legitimate content now that's not something that Condé Nast does at all but you know there are things such as paid inclusions where you know where brands will pay to be included in these particular buying guides for example or tenancies where which is where um, it's it's basically a, a different way of doing uh, paid advertorial, but it's not declared as advertorial. And so these are the sorts of things that I think as the publishing industry 
has to be, and journalism has to be incredibly careful with as we go forward, because if we're going to survive this sort of, uh, this new way of coming into it, we have to make sure that we don't sort of screw everything up that we've built so far, especially if you're talking about brand, simply mm. by chasing after a new revenue stream that might be um, a very nice way of, of ameliorating the, the, the loss of traditional print or display advertising. And it's definitely something that's taking place. And yeah. at some point soon, um, I'm pretty sure that the various bodies governing sort of advertising may actually notice as well. It'd be like, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Is this properly labelled? Is this actually paid for or not? I can guarantee you, for example, everything we do on Wired is 100% editorial source and yeah. all the tests that we do are all tested you know ourselves too but I can't guarantee you that's the case for everybody else out there doing this sort of content in fact I would say it's very unlikely there's a sort of an interesting kind of challenge kind of at the I suppose if you kind of go up two or three levels that um there's now sort of basically infinite product the sort of the problem that sits at the kind of the core of a lot of this is you know some of this is trying to persuade me which of five brands of beer to buy or whether to buy a BMW, Mercedes or Tesla, not the Tesla advertisers. Um, but quite a lot of, in particularly what's interesting instead of Instagram or Pinterest, um, or to your point of, you know, what are the head, which headphones should I buy, is that, you know, go back 200 years, like there were a thousand consumers in each country and all the product was handmade. And there wasn't really a discovery problem. <laughs> you know, 2,000 subscribe yeah. consumers in Britain in total, and like the, everything was made bespoke or almost, not exaggerating a bit. You can go to like 1900 and the Industrial Revolution and the middle class, and now the filter is A, newspapers and magazines, and B, what fits in the shop. So it's the buyer at the department store, the boutique, and it's the editor at Did Vogue exist in 1900? Exist in 1920, anyway. Um, and so you have the filter of the people who tell you about it and the people who decide to stock it. And now there's obviously no filter on stock. Yeah. There might be a filter on you go to a small online store that only decides to stock 10 things, but obviously Amazon has infinite product for practical purposes, but you know, Net-A-Porter has tens of thousands of scoops. So you can't browse Net-A-Porter or Mr. Porter or any of those sites. Um, and you also can't, and so there, but, and, and meanwhile, Instagram of course has infinite recommendation so there's this sort of challenge of like you've kind of got to build somehow create a sample or some sense of a graph of like what am i interested in how would i discover that where would i see those things and where would i know where to get them from it, you're talking about curation which yes. is which is, is what right. i'm here for but the problem is like all search grows until you need curation Yep. And then all curation grows until you need search. So you've got a department store yep. and then you've got a really fucking big department store. And now how do I find anything? Well, GQ tells me what to buy. You, can't, go, you can't browse Selfridges like, unless you've got like weeks. So GQ says, go and get this at Selfridges. And then you go to a teeny tiny boutique that only shops 10 things, but then you've got to know that boutique exists and you read about it in Vogue and they say, oh, you must go to this wonderful boutique that's in this little side street somewhere in Notting Hill. And there you go and you discover it. Yep. And then they get stopped in um, South Fifth Avenue. And then you've got to discover, and you see you've got this kind of endless cycle going round and round and round of where does it exist? But of course on the internet, like the department store is infinite and the Westbourne Park doesn't exist. So how do you know, how do you find it? And it's not just products. We're seeing that with all the Substack and all the newsletters that are happening. There's a consumer fatigue of the amount of content that's put in front of us and what do we digest and what do we look at? And we joked with, I think it was with you, Benedict, on one of our episodes of just, we're going to need curators to tell us which content we need to see. And as I just saw that there's an app that's just in beta mode that's just being created, which is that they handpick a hundred influencers or noteworthy people. And these people tell you what the 10 articles that you're supposed to read that week, which mm. I don't know if that actually is the solution or if that works, but it's interesting that it it's slam bam it's coming back to curators what was that london app five years ago that just had one thing to do each day well, i don't you know but that? i like that i can't remember what it was but it was just one thing so it might be a walk or an exhibition or a movie or this bar has a happy hour or something um but it was just one thing did it differ depending on the user using it or was it one thing and the same I don't for everyone so. i mean it was also it was a little bit like movie if you've seen that, which is they only have 30 movies and every day they add a new one and remove one that's there from 30 days ago. And so again, it's constraint. And a lot of stuff that's happening in social now is about constraint. 
Like it's only audio or it's only these people or you can only post pictures of other people and your friends post pictures of you or you can only do one picture a day or you have to wait a minute. You have to wait five minutes for the picture to appear or something. It's all about like, how do you get away from the fire hose of infinite product, infinite content, infinite messages, infinite pictures? How do you kind of constrain it down to just one thing? Well, this is the, it, partly to link to the, what we're talking about rising of the influencers as well, because they, yeah. they, they, it's constrained down to what they actually recommend or what they actually want to do. Was it Kevin Sharp who was, was on stage with an influencer? He was, he was a Unilever at the time, and he said, like, why are you actually called an influencer? Mm. Who decided that? Yeah. Who gave you that title and decided that name? Now look at the, the, the dynamic. Even in journalism, we spent a lot of years knocking the influencers and saying like you know why they you know who, who are they influencing who gave them this power well ironically as we did and uh, it, this is one of the situations we're in right now and yeah. one of those areas where people are looking to turn that you know get out of the fire hose and just say okay well i want this famous person or this person of influence or whatever to tell me what exactly what i want to get and what was it that that whole survey with kids what was it three or four years ago of what do you want to be when you grow up and they're all saying youtubers or instagram you know and then now actually that's just changed to content creators so forget influence we should have probably listened to the kids five years ago because everyone wants to be a content creator these days yeah. there's a shop in tokyo that i've written about called that only sells one book yeah yeah once a month they change and it's just one book but of course you've got to know that shop exists yeah. and you've got to go to that part of ginza and you've got to know and you've got to be part of the club to get to get it or listen to this um, podcast then you know well exactly yeah i mean someone years ago i think there was a piece in the new york times about a denim shop in tokyo called not found because the idea was you couldn't google it <laughs> i love know. that it had to be word of mouth reverse seo i don't think it works you can google it and you'll find no. it. And if you google not found denim shop in tokyo it will show you the shop We'll find the article anyway. This is, I mean, these are good examples, but do you feel like these examples are exceptions to the rule though? These are good, these are nice examples, but they don't actually illustrate exactly how the rest of it works. And then, and then you've got the other examples, you know, in journalism where there's much talk about this idea of, of um, the drive towards quality journalism is actually turning around the subscriptions model. And whereas before that may not have been the problem and you could say most people don't want to read anymore. I know on Wired, for example, that we track how long people actually read our different articles. And what was interesting about that fact is that when, the, when we started to publish, we took a gamble and started to publish longer pieces online. And then, you know, this is, you know, get finally getting out of that phase of we weren't going to publish our magazine content online, even though, we, even though anybody with a brain would know that they're a radically different audience anyway, and you're not cannibalizing your audience. But when you started to put the longer pieces online, the average read rate went up, not down. This is the idea of trying to get to these areas where people will actually spend time if the quality is there. And it's no secret, obviously, that certain newspapers have seen a massive uptick in their subscriptions model during you know, the Trump administration, during the pandemic lockdown as well. But again, I'm not sure whether that is exemplary of what is taking place on a longer term strategy or that they're just blips. I'd, I'd almost lean into that and say what you're seeing is just a lot of fragmentation. Mm. That there's a lot of different models and a lot of different ways to build a business online now. Yeah. Um, to make money. You know, whether it's the Athletic or Hockindy or however you pronounce it, or Substack or podcasts or influencers, you just have this sort of massive proliferation of different ways to build a business. Because in the past, the way you build a business was, well, you had a printing press. And everything sort of flowed out of that and said it was kind of only one way of doing it. Mm. Which was, well, it's kind, it's like, it's like, um, you know, it's a line about books that books have to be a certain number of pages because that's how big they are. And it doesn't matter if you don't have that many pages, like tough, find another chapter. Um, and it's kind of, you know, magazines are a certain size and like because of like, the economics of the whole industry. And then when you go to the internet and those constraints go away, then maybe you know, that might, you know, this guy's got a podcast and that person's, they've got a newsletter and they're, they're doing this thing and they're doing that other thing. And there's just all of them. Yeah. You know, I, you know and, and just, as I sort of said earlier, like I struggle to see there being hundreds of thousands of Substack writers in five or 10 years time. Yeah. I can, you know, but clearly there's, I have no problem at all. There being hundreds of thousands of Instagram stores people making real money from an Instagram store or indeed any fans. And there already are yeah. hundreds of thousands of people making yeah. money from any fans. And I think you just have that kind of endless proliferation. I mean, you go to a sort of trivial point, like, you know, it's a lot easier for a cooking person to sell video than for me. 
the line, you know, I can sell writing. Cooking person can sell video. We, yeah. Cooking person can probably also sell pictures. I can't sell pictures. I might be able to sell video, but I can't sell pictures. Yeah. Um, but a cooking person can sell pictures or video, maybe text as well. But like, you know, just it depends. Whereas in the past, it would all have been a magazine. It would all have been text and pictures. And yeah. maybe you get a TV show out of it. We saw it with Clubhouse too, didn't we? Of all of a sudden, what you can do with just audio uh, of just like seeing those conversations emerge that couldn't have been a pod, that couldn't have been oh, maybe a podcast. You're making me feel old. Remember Clubhouse? Remember Clubhouse? Um, we <laughs> should wrap up, but Jeremy, I'm I'm curious if there's something like you shared so much about where this industry is going, the challenges. Like, is there something that's that you you're excited about? Is there something in particular that you're like looking forward to to seeing emerge or dig into more? Or that we should um, be looking out for. Um, um, it's it's not a matter of being excited. I'm just really interested to see where these where these different models will be taking us. Like you know, I'm really interested to see whether in, you know individual journalists can actually establish themselves as a brand sufficiently enough yeah. so they can actually therefore you know you know like sustain themselves yeah. sustain themselves and break out of the publishing model. I mean, the music industry started this quite a long way beforehand, where certain artists could you know made their entire first albums on, on their own. I think Gomez made their first album themselves and then went on from there. Interestingly, their best album themselves. And then actually when they got into the record company, it all went downhill. That's my point of view. <laughs> and so, and, you know, so it would be interesting to see what happens here, where they have to band together to make to help them survive, as we talked about, and basically effectively make different, make their own little mini publishing houses or whether they can actually go ahead. It'd be interesting to see how affiliates actually changes publishing as it has visibly changed publishing or publishing already in the last five years as it's really coming to take take a grip and then obviously then you've got the other things like what's happening with hubbing which is another thing that's happening with publishing right now where where you've got publishers like future where they are not only with they with the affiliate content but they're also trying to say well why do we need to have you know, this, these people reviewing these sorts of products or writing about these sorts of things or writing about these sorts of opinions, uh, but, and then that's being duplicated on our other titles. Why can't we get, just get them to write for three or four or five different titles? And it's called hubbing. And the problem with, and that sounds brilliant on paper, when you think from a, from a financial point of view, but actually what you're doing then is you're robbing those particular media channels of their own voice. When you really cannot make somebody write, rewrite one particular article five or six times and make them genuinely sound different for a particular audience that want that particular magazine or looking at that particular website. And so it, the, there's all these tensions at play about where this is going and it's just completely unclear and then you've got the rush towards video and mm -hmm. audio and and producing documentaries and feature films which is what Conde Nast is also doing as well and so they're all trying to go into these different directions and radically changing what publishing was and very until and to was until very recently and so it's almost like a wild west right now where no one no. really has cracked it and, and so it's going to be very interesting to see what actually settles after this all dies down. I have personally, I do not know. That's a good note to end on. Nobody knows anything. Come and listen to us. We have no idea where the, the world is heading and we have no answers for you, but stay tuned. That's what I love about That's your great. podcast. There's too many people out there saying I know exactly where it's going and they don't know exactly where it's going. No, you're and, spot on there. You know, it's the, pe the people that are willing... To say that they don't like you guys is you know, it's far more interesting anyway.